Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview has been so recorded. My name is Paul Leary and this is XJob Downloaded. And today we're going to interview my mate, Mike Neville. Now, Mike is a former police officer with the Metropolitan Police and he was a groundbreaker when it came to super recognisers. But we'll come on to that uh, later on in the interview. But Mike, thanks for coming in this morning to talk to us. Where did it all start for Mike Neville? Where were you born and, and how did you get to the police? So I was born in Bolton in uh, Lancashire, 67. Um, always inter- all my, most of my family had been soldiers, uh, about four or five generations back. My uncle was a detective constable initially in Lancashire and then later Greater Manchester when it was all uh, amalgamated together. So there was like police and army in my family. Um, I went to a local grammar school, uh, st- liked history and stuff like that. So I write books, so that that, that carries on. But um, I always I wanted to join the police. There was no police cadets at the time, so my mate said, I'm joining the army, and there's the military police. So I went in the uh, Royal Military Police. I joined at 16. had a great time, went out to Hong Kong, adventure training as a, you know, from a council house in Bolton. How would you else to do that? And then uh, served in what was then West Germany, which was really good for policing because you had all the service families as well as the uh, and attached personnel as well as soldiers. So good experience. I was like the, I was like a training detective in the special investigation branch, and which is, you're also like the coroner's officer as well. So lots of dead bodies, you know. <laughs> sadly, a lot of children, a lot of cop deaths in the army, bizarrely. Oh. Um, some good investigations, and then I was in Northern Ireland, and then I in I, I rang up. Um, Manchester Police from Londonderry and I said are you are you recruiting and they said no I came out of the phone box disappointed and a friend who I'm still really good friends with now he said I'm joining the Met so I went back in a phone box and that's uh, that one your whole life sometimes pivots on a moment in time doesn't it it was uh, outside a phone box in Londonderry that that's why I ended up in the Mets and I joined in 89. Fantastic. Well, it's interesting because the, the the podcast that came out um, this week was with Dave Mangan, and he was a former military police, went into Lancashire Police, and yeah, I saw, it, I saw, I saw that. Yeah. He's a, a really nice guy. Um, so, what section were you with with the RMP? My, my dad was with Nineteen Brigade, and then they amalgamated one five six and went to Colchester. But where did where were you? So I was in, uh, so it was originally 110 and then it was 113 Provost Company out in uh, West West Germany. But the initial training was in Bovington, that was army training. Military police training was in Chichester, out to Germany, 110-113 Provost Company. I was actually on a, a, attached to a special unit for a short time, which used to sh- chase Russian cars around. Wow. For any ex-soldiers on here, they'll remember the socks miss. The Soviet mission and the, the Soviets had a mission uh, in West Germany. We had the same in East East uh, Berlin, and we would chase them around. It was like uh, fantastic, really. <laughs> um, and, and then I was in the special investigation branch, which, as I said, dealt dealt with all sorts of uh, theft, fraud, murder, rape, you, some uh, some quite nasty rapes, child molesters who were you know some of those were just they were children of servicemen, and then. From uh, that seven day SIB, I went to uh, I went back into uniform because you, you, you could only be a sergeant. I passed the special investigation branch course, and I was proud to have an A grade. Now everybody gets A these days, but there've been seven A's in twenty five years, so it was a you know. But I had an awful time. I had to go back into uniform while I waited to be promoted, uh, and I was on uniform patrols in Londonderry and Fermanagh, uh, and then. I had a choice then. I could either commission, I could wait and be an SIB sergeant or join the police, uh, which was always my real ambition. So that's why I, uh, that's the point when I decided to leave the army after five years and, and join the Met. What, what was it like working in Northern Ireland those days? Because you're, you're talking about 
the time Andy Mudd was blown up in 89 in, in the UK, but it was still full on in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so the, the key moments that when I was there, if you remember uh, Michael Stone running around the uh, cemetery throwing bombs at Jerry Adams and some IRA funeral, which was then followed by those two Special Forces guys being dragged out of the car. Yeah. So it was all very uh, real. You know, there's lots of uh, bombings. Two of our own lads got uh, blown up. They, they got blown up coming back from a nightclub. But luckily, the two lads who got in the back had met some girls, and they got blown up and ended up driving like a Lowland Hardy half a car down the road. Wow! But, <laughs> but uh, it was all real. But I suppose when you're young, you, you, you're young and foolish. It, it was. I'm glad I did it. It was a good experience, and I think really the the police know. One of my big themes is the police are not recruiting the right people. When I joined the Mets. At least half the guys on the pass up parade had medals on their chest. Yeah, uh, and I just think those people brought a lot to the police, and they've been uh, dismissed really, and not uh, that skill has not been utilised. And it goes against Sir Robert Peel, who said he wanted guard sergeants, not gentlemen. Um, and we saw, how, you know, excellent the guards were at the Queen's uh, funeral. Uh, and I just think we need more of that, not less in the police. And do you think? I wonder if that's because the the senior management now have have, have never come through a military background. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to the point. I know that Hogan Ho, when he's commissioner, somebody suggested to him that look, we should offer these uh, you know police courses to uh, service personnel when they're leaving. And he said, we don't want that type of person. So it's absolutely deliberate. And if you look at the Met and you look at other forces, you can always tell by the medals because they're always wearing tunics. In the Met, when I joined, I think half the senior officers have been armed forces. I don't think there's one of them, no. No. Out of 40. That's, that's a great shame because actually that's where leadership is born. When, when you're standing next to your mate in a in a trench and I'm interviewing some Falklands veterans who, who will explain even modern-day trench warfare. I know it's, we talked yeah. 40 years ago, but but when you stand next to them, you know who you trust. And if you haven't got that at the top level, then trust becomes a massive issue. When you joined the Met, you've gone through your basic training at Hendon, which I probably – every military police person I've ever spoken to who did police basic training thought it was a joke, simply because they already knew how to ball their shoes and, and iron their trousers and all, all that malarkey. But what was that like for you at Hendon? Well, I tell you what, the first night summed up to me at Hendon, because when I joined the junior leaders at 16, we were given a photograph and you were encouraged to cross off the heads of those people who got binned. So the sergeant <laughs> said, right, how many people here? 30, right, five of you will get through. So immediately you up your game, don't you? And they, they're, they're ruthless, the sergeants. and the, and then, But at the end of your time, when you meet them again when you're out, you know what top blokes they were. They were absolutely dedicated people. And, you know, I've met them since. You know, I've been higher ranked them. You know, I'm a, I have a colonel's rank now in the in the army cadets. I met my old sergeant major. He said, oh, one of my, one of my lads is a colonel. And, and you have utter respect for these people. And it was like, oh, they're out of 35, we'll get through. First night at Hendon, the sergeant was weak and weedy. And he said, how many people here? 20, 19 will get through. So straight away, a slack attitude, in my view, crept in. And there's also, you could detect to change because there was me um a girl who'd been in the RAF and an ex-grenadier and we were the first time ever that the military people weren't appointed as the class captain so that you could see the change then mm. 1989 and that awful attitude has crept all the way through yeah and it, I mean our first chief constable was uh in Essex was a military person you know and that's how that's how the and, and in fact, when Colchester was a, a borough force, unless you'd been in the military, you didn't get into the police because you, <laughs> you had to know how to fight with the squaddies in the street. That yeah, was yeah. that was the bottom line. You, you're at Hendon, you finished your training. Where did you go to from there? So my friend who originally uh, encouraged me to join the mess, he was at Streatham, so I tried to get to Streatham with him, but there was no place, so I got to Clapham. Clapham was a good, a good old police station at Union Grove. It's now a block of flats, I think. Good Victorian police station. Um, good area as well. It was next, right next to Brixton, but without the politics. Uh, so it was a good, uh, you know, so lots of um, crime uh, in particular. Young, young black men in particular. Robberies, that was a big thing. White crime, uh, vehicle thefts, the burglary. Um a good what 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 was not what I expected was pub fights and stuff. Having been in the military police, I never went to one of those. But it was there was a street robbery was the 
that was a key area that I found myself active in because what happened was I'd been an army cadet so and I joined the instructor I became an instructor in the army cadets I, I, I took over the, the uh, unit that covered Brixton and Peckham so I had good relationships with all these young kids from all sorts of backgrounds but it particularly led me into got me trust um and I was a home beat officer very soon afterwards I was made a permanent beat officer for an area around um uh south lambeth road and clapham road it's a triangle which has got two two very bad estates one was particularly bad for drug dealing but also some very rich houses where joanna lumley lived and and, and things like that so a very good area to police in but because i ran the local army cadets i had lots of trust and people would tell me what was going on so right. the two things i remember i nicked um a, a, a fellow who'd been an armed robber and his uh, daughter had been on away on the camp and I said oh your daughter did well in the in the cadets at the weekend she got a shooting badge and he said oh it must be hereditary <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a good relationship with the locals you know one time some drug dealers tried to attack me uh, a lot of black guys tried to attack me and there was a lot of Irish fellas and I'd helped out one of them had got a parking ticket and I sorted it out and they all came out of the pub with hammers and uh <laughs> I wasn't attacked again. <laughs> no. So it was a good it was a good area to uh to work uh, and also be enmeshed because I think what's been lost in the police is they talk about community relations and it is simply that and the community relations means having a a meeting where only people are very vocal and noisy and have got their grievances about stop and search they come along that's the senior officers think think is community liaison i had real community liaison in the sense i took these kids away the roughest families trusted me you know um and it made a difference i understood where they were coming from and and of course i was seen as part of the community now if you look at place and i lived in lambeth as well at the time if you look now like brixton it's almost like an occupation force they none of the officers live there none of them have got any currency there you know they come the police they go away whereas i was in a place where i lived there you know and it, I, I i lived there and i was involved there in the community and i just think that makes a difference it's what actions not words uh, absolutely right and, and for me a turning point in policing history was 1994 when they did away with housing allowance and therefore police houses went Licensing laws changed. We've gone. We went from a culture where you had Sunday with your with your family. I've said this before on here, but where you had Sunday with your your family and you had your roast dinner. Now you can drink from eight in the morning till midnight, yeah. two o'clock in the morning. There is no balance around life and community, and every crime doesn't matter where it is in the world starts in a community. Yeah. And unless you've got that community interaction, chief officers, you're not going to have community policing. You can have as many blue light runs and as many local policing teams, but unless you're working in the community, you're not going to know what's happening there. I mean, just to give you an idea, Pop, somebody uh, stopped me from calling in my, to my cadet unit when I was on duty. That's how naive and stupid these senior officers are, like, you know. So, But they're all talk. So they'll tell you about diversity, they'll tell you about community relations. It's all rubbish. It's just words and they don't play the game. And uh, I say it was good. I got good information. I mean, the consequences of all this, what, what happened was, is another big change that happened, if I can continue on the career. Is all right? Continue on? Carry on, mate. Uh, was, the, the floor is yours. So a big, it, the banks in the, in, the, in the early 90s and the building societies, they took down their screens to be more friendly and user-friendly, okay? And this had a consequence because the bank robbers went from being like, like me and you with Stocky Marston, like you see in the Sweeney, middle-aged white men, uh, to young black kids just simply no weapons, leaping the counters and and, and stealing these steam, steaming robberies. And the DI at the time, a guy called Ian McDonald, I must be getting old because I spoke to his daughter who's a sergeant, and uh, he said, you, he said, he handed me a book of photographs because you didn't get a video in those days, he's got a book of photographs. He said, you know about these uh, young black kids around here? And this is the whole start of my career in images cctv super record this is the critical moment when ian mcdonald handed me that book and what i rapidly realized was that there was no systems if if he, if fingerprints or dna had been found at these cases uh, there would have been something done and myself and a guy called dave barnfather who i'm still fr friends with his uh geordie lab we were interviewing a uh one of the lads who we caught doing one of these robberies and we said so we're at the fingerprint desk and uh, taking his fingerprints and he said how many of these have you done and he said, 
about 70. What? 70? How how has this been missed? But the reason it's been missed is because London was then divided into about 70 divisions and the flying squad only would deal with armed robbery. So if you rob by force of numbers, and when we looked into it, they were hitting post offices, banks, and a huge operation grew out of this. And I was showing... So at one point, there was six juvenile informants in the Met, and I had five of them. Uh, and we're showing them the we're going to see them in prison, show them the photographs, get the names, uh, arrest. It was so quick. You know, we've been nicking them the following day. There's no, uh, you know, this business of having what, what's the phrase that that, that, that that breaking the link, which I'm trying to think what it was in the what was in the because I was an informant handler as well. Yeah. Uh, and um, there was no corridor between it. We were getting the information, nicking them. And we ended up solving 132 bank and post office uh, robberies. You know, I was like a PC. <laughs> Dave was a new uh, a DC, uh, and we got loads. Every time I'd read a book by about Tony Lundy, and now Tony Lundy is either the most people say he's the most corrupt officer in the Met, he's the best officer in the Met, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, in that book, Tony Lundy had said, "Offer everybody the chance to give information," and I, that was every time. And even when, and what I used to find with the old Bill, they could have fights with anybody. Me, I could fight with anybody. But when I got back to the station, I would say, "Look, it's ended. You know, it, it, we're here now. You might as well be good." And I'd say, "Do you want some food? I don't want your food ban and all this sort of stuff." But I'd go and buy Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, it wasn't even Kentucky; it was like a Mississippi Fried Chicken or something, <laughs> you know, like one pound fifty. And a bloke said to me, "He said you're a mug." I said, "Am I?" I said, "I made ten grand's worth of overtime out of the last bloke about about uh, one pound fifty worth of uh, Kentucky yeah. for because I can talk to people." And so, and so, one case led to another case, led to another case. But what it exposed completely is that there was no systems. So. Officers were given images. You could say to an officer, look, I'm not dealing with this case, but that bloke in that photograph is Billy Smith. Now, if they were handed a fingerprint docket to say Billy Smith did this crime, the DI would be on to them. You've been given a fingerprint docket, what's happening? With images, it was like, have that, and no one checked. So I re- as a young PC, I realised this, and I, I, I very quickly became a DS, and I went from training detective to temporary di in 18 months it's a massive jump really yeah it is uh, and then uh, i was doing all this work and i was informant handler informant controller uh, and i made all the officers show images so i thought you get image, you get uh, information about drug dealing somebody might do it might not if it's a crime that's been committed and somebody says that's billy smith in the picture you've got to do something about it but then i got dci um about 14 years in i think and uh I was there was no jobs, and the only job I'd offer was crime policy unit. Now, bearing in mind, I'd always worked on Lambeth and Southwark. I was like a DI off the bill. I actually knew where the streets were, you know, because I'd been a PC. You know, I wasn't imposed. I knew where things were, um, and I thought, you know, I really do. I really want to go and work at the yard, and and I thought, do you know what? This is the opportunity to to do something about this thing i found you know this image thing and i probably got the minutes of the first meeting where i said look we're going this is what we're going to look at cctv how we use it how we record it how we action it how we measure it and i fell in with a ds steve hubbard again i'm still friends with and he'd been tasked to look at what was failing at trials and one of the biggest things of course was cctv so me and him like meshed together and um we had an idea that we need a specialist unit and uh, I went to Southwark and the detective superintendent, there was Nick Afgrave, who of course retired recently. It was an assistant commissioner in the Met. And he gave me like uh, the sort of waifs and strays, you know, I think the only one fit for duty was a 20 stone lad, I think in the first <laughs> unit we set up uh, this CCTV unit. But it's like the dirty dozen, you know, and I looked after people. And if you look after people, they work well for you. And we set up this first CCTV unit. And if you remember the old police gazette, Southwark, was where we were started off was circulating more images than any force in the country. That's how many were getting in. And then I decided that if they were being identified, how did we manage that? And we, we, I said to the girl at the time, Gemma, who I ended up getting married to, I said to her, look, 
what you need to do, we need to separate it so there's a separate unit. So even though you're in the same room, pretend you're a different unit, that they tell you the identification, we send it back. And that's where the MET circulation unit grew out of, where all images went into one place. And then if they're identified, you didn't tell the DC, it came in, there was all checks on the identification. Is this person, you know, does he commit these sort of crimes? Does he, uh, have they got form for this sort of stuff? What Do they live locally? And that would be sent to the DCI on the borough responsible and, and monitored. So I looked at how we dealt with fingerprints and DNA and put the same management structure around that. And at the same time, I was working on a database because I found out there was images of, we were circulating images of criminals. And somebody said, I know that guy there, Billy Smith. We call up his last mugshot and we already had an image of him in the same clothes. It's just mad how bad the police, and this is still to this day, this is how poor it is. Like It's mm. crazy sort of stuff. And so... Out of that, so we had, uh, in the end, the best thing I suppose that happened for me, tragic for Croydon, was the riots in 2011, because I exposed all CCTV failings. I, I was, um, I was in the, the, the uh, I was on front page of the Times. Uh, I was in the uh, BBC nine o'clock news because I exposed all the police uh, failings uh, about uh, CCTV. Said how awful it was, and, and an utter fiasco was the phrase. <laughs> and of course, senior officers, rather than deal with the problem, they try and deal with you. So they, they investigate your private life. They look at moving you. They even try to encourage you to get promoted. So, you, but they will rather than deal with the problem. And I think it's really wicked. This the people involved. They need to be shamed, really. But. The riots came and actually was marched in front of a commander called Simon Foy. And I was brought back from an army cadet camp because it was in August. And he said, I'm sorry, we should have listened. And I had my skipper there as witness to all this. Uh, we should have listened. And the IT department, now I despise the IT department. And they'd done everything they could to stop this database going on because of, oh, it's too much like hard work and stuff. And the commissioner gave one of those fewer orders, you'll put it on and you'll put it on today. So that was a consequence. And because of the right, and then what started to happen, of course, is in between all this, I had noticed that as a circulated image, you say I put 100 images out, we'd get about 50% IDs. But of the 50 identifications, that didn't come from 50 officers. You know, there was one officer, say, there's a lad called Jamie Smith, who's a PC at Southwark. He, out of the 50, he would make 10. Right. So my question was, is Jamie Smith just busy or is there something else about Jamie Smith? What is it with him? And I fell in with a, a, a what was then doctor, no, Professor Josh Davis from Greenwich. Uh, and we must have been at a conference together. We, we, neither of us can remember exactly when we met. When I spoke to Josh and I said, look, I've got this. You're a psychologist. And he was very cynical uh, because his PhD had been on uh, bad identification evidence, how poor people are recognising people. You, know, you can't trust ID parades and things like that. So he said, all right, so we did. So we got some people together and we did some tests at the uh, sports club, uh, what, the Warren Sports Club in the Met. Uh, and it was in July before the riots in the August. And he said to me, you know, I think we're onto something here. Because, and, and what we found out that in America, a professor, a, a, a professor at Harvard, uh, Richard uh, Russell, had said um, he was looking at people who are called prosopagnosics, and that is uh, face blindness. So he was looking at people who are face blind. And he'd said, look, you know, if you've got to, everything you do in the world, whether it's playing chess, football, uh, mathematics, recognising faces. Any human skill is a bell curve. So the vast majority of people are average. But uh, there's two extremes, a very small number. Each, we were either completely rubbish, so prosopagnosic, face blind, or two left feet with football, or there is David Beckham at the ex other extreme, or there are, he said if there are people who are prosopagnosic to one side, there are people who are super recognisers at the other. So that's where the phrase... So right. as he was doing that academic work i was like finding these people operationally and then um i met josh and josh said oh and then somebody approached me from uh, queen mary's university and he said oh there's this eu funding would you join our project so i got my boss in a guy called dave way i said look what we're going to do we're going to like tell this professor from st mary's we want we want this we want that we want the other and the guy came in and he utterly rolled over he gave us everything 
And, uh, you know, my wage was paid for by the, I'm a Brexiteer, but my, and I went on these uh, weeks, of, uh, like days away with the EU and I saw the utter wastefulness of how much food people could eat and the disgracefulness that people didn't do any work. But me and Josh Davis did, we, we, we created all these new tests. Uh, to fight different tests for super recognizers. So we didn't just look at the whole ability. We looked at breaking it down into short-term memory, long-term memory, spotting faces in crowds and image matching. So they're the key uh, skills. Um, but that's, so that's how the super, and as the riots occurred, what we realized is we, um, we were sending emails out, do you, do you know who these people are? And of course people delete emails. So I was, I was given another, pool of officers who were not sick, lame and lazy. Most of them were just sick and couldn't work. So one guy had a heart condition, another had bad ep epilepsy, somebody had been badly beaten up. One guy had one hand uh, and he, he'd lost it in a in a traffic accident, police traffic accident. And he said to me, Governor, you know, I've had crap jobs since. He said, but working with you, I feel as I can make a difference. Because what I did with them, they had a t they found super recognisers, they took the images and they made appointments to... Uh, see super recognizers and that increased their identification rate by 50 percent by having this focused team going out um one of the one of the best guys uh, a black guy called idris uh, you've got the bem actually idris was uh, he still is a jailer so he's not even a police officer but uh, like for example he, he works in the cells at uh, charing cross 60 cells so he sees a lot of people a lot of thieves burglars every day one of the what we call the area identification lads would make an appointment with idris see a sergeant, look, can we see him for two hours, sit him in a room, show him with the database, you could say, right, I want to see Westminster burglars. You know, could break it down. And he would make 20 IDs in, a, in an hour or so. All the paperwork was done and that made it. But then the biggest thing that changed for all the things I do was an Excel spreadsheet because I could see each borough, I could see which uh, how many identifications have been sent and how many have been converted into a detected crime. And the assistant commissioner called me up to one of these meetings, like, you know, the James Bond meeting where all the yeah. uh, 32 borough commanders are sat out around the shark tank. And I could produce this spreadsheet, you see, just like we could do with fingerprints and DNA. And that was the moment that people started to take notice because it's no career threatening. You know, they, they essentially you've got to make sure that officers... so. What, I, what I've done from the very start, from getting that book of photographs from D.I. McDonald as a young PC, was to create this end-to-end -end system. So any image, I, I saw it as an assault course, you know, like the, you, the police PC might not get the image, so it collapses then. If he gets the image, he doesn't know how to circulate it, it collapses then. If you circulate it, you get an ID, but no one does anything, it collapses then. If he gets that, you know, you send it out to a DC who then says, I don't think it's them, it collapses then. Or the CPS can't use the thing. So all these obstacles I tried to, like, nullify. And so we had this system where you capture an image of a criminal off the camera, whatever, mobile phone, drone, and it ends up in a criminal being convicted at court. And, of course, people get longer sentences because it's one thing saying he smashed his head into the floor, but when you see it, that's really, you know, that that, that shows the evilness of it, really. So, uh, But we're still in a situation, though, with, um, if you look at Essex Police when we went out there, so you're all forced, you know, with, with you, like, let's find all the super recognisers. Then yeah. I spoke to them afterwards and they said, do you know, it's good, but we haven't got any images to look at, you know, because people like the super recognisers. It's good because it, it's almost like the stockings and suspenders of the whole thing. That's sexy, isn't it? Having, uh, you know, these super cops who can do all this sort of stuff. But what you need, of course, is the boring bit of getting the images and showing yeah. to them and managing the, the and having a management process. Um and then what you have, of course, is that senior officers have been dealing with the force recently. Oh, we don't need super recognizers. We're getting facial recognition. So they think, but a one, a computer needs a human to verify it. And, and the computers only really work when it's really good quality face on images. You know, so it's a real, the two of them complement each other. They're not a competition. Yeah. Um, but the it saddens me. What saddens me most of all of this is that I have not, I don't want to make a millions of pounds as long as I can, you know, feed the several children and, and, and support the several wives I've had. As long as I can do that, uh, you know, I, and I've got food on my table, I've got a wonderful skill that could solve hundreds of thousands of crimes 
and it's not being utilised. Yes, no. And it, it could be being, it could be utilised far more. And I appeal to anybody that if you're for, you know, well, I'm a businessman now, and I, I look to the Met, and it costs about if you if you look at the Met, if you say their product like a factory is a detected crime, if you look at how many what the Met budget is. And how many crimes are solved? Each crime costs about £40,000 to solve, okay? Wow. And what I'm saying, from a business point of view, it costs me, because I have to pay for the university to do all the tests and I do all the training and stuff, it costs about £20,000 to go into a police force and find their super recognisers and train the top 20. You think, that's half a detection and you could have a 1,000 detections. So when senior police officers, oh, is there a business case? Will you give me a better business case than that? You know, it's madness. and But it's not only madness, it's saddening that to have something, to think, it, I always remind you of, I take great um, uh, sympathy, really, for the Dan Busters, the first part of the Dan Busters film where, 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 where the, you know, Barnes Wallace is going to go around, he's going around and no one believes him that he can do this. You know, and I, I just think, it, it, it grieves me that, that this thing exists. These and like Josh Davis, the professor says, why aren't police forces using this more? But, and there's a lot of uh, a friend of mine is a brigadier in the regular army, and uh, he spoke to a chief constable that formally endorsed it and said, "Why aren't you using super recognisers?" And this chief constable said to a brigadier, "We don't do anything the Met does on principle." And you could bang your head on the table, couldn't you? But that's ridiculous. I, I saw well, your business in action. I saw what you did in the Metropolitan Police in action, and it was amazing. You had a professional team. Uh, I assume that they're not running that anymore. As a, there's not a super... Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 there is. Oh. Say, the two, two of the guys were on the Novichok. That's how they found the Novichok men. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. We, we can't, we can't, but, but, I mean... And Grenfell. I, I watched I watched what you guys did and I got frustrated because, you know, my chief was ex-Met um, and they were all up for it, but then they thought about the money, but they didn't equate the money with what was really going on, you know, how much it would really cost to, to deliver. And it's absolutely captivating. And not only did you have regular officers in there, you had a a team of willing volunteers who were skilled as a, as super recognizers and they were detecting crimes in their community yeah. it was amazing I mean, the, the, the volunteer unit i mean they came what how that came about is that because of the riots all the police focus was on was on um the riots and so the images of burglars and criminal damages and thefts was being uh, ignored and so I found these. I'm a volunteer because I, I was an army. I'm an army cadet officer now, and so I went to the Met volunteers. And there was a guy who's like a computer expert being used to feed the dogs. You know, a it's madness. A bloke who was a CCTV guy being used to shuffle paper. So we got them all in, and and they did such a good job. And they won the volunteer award of the uh, uh, of the year. You know, they got an award from the Home oh, Secretary yeah. uh, Theresa May at the time. But and I went up to Merseyside Police and I, I walked through banks of empty machines, well, machines not being used in the CCTV. And I thought, in mine, I'd have a volunteer fighting to come on that machine. Yeah. You know? So it just shows how you, all these little bits you can do. Uh, and I just think... It's tragic that uh, the police forces they'll say oh, we haven't got any money. In a, in a business, you use your money smarter. You, you look at different ways to achieve more, but they just carry on doing the same. Playing the same tune. But I invented something that catches loads of crooks. I mean, Kevin Hurley. I love Kevin Hurley. He was a commander, of course, and his PCC in uh, Surrey. Yeah. He, he gave me a quote: "No other detective has caught more criminals with images than the, than the new." And it's nice, you know. It's good to think that. And, and I had the world's first conviction from a pattern recognition. So if you look at your your logo on your T-shirt, yeah. You can. What I did, I, I used that. I, I used a pattern recognition thing because it's used for the advertising industry. You know, if you, you put Coca Cola on the Super Bowl pitch, you want to know you're getting value for money. Only, only people can see it for how long. But I found a guy in the same t shirt a year apart. So he's either got no clothes or he's a prolific burglar. And then I found his, uh, then I found his uh, mugshot with the same t shirt. Uh, so we know not. So I then gave that image. To the super recognisers, we found him for seven more burglaries in in different clothes. So it's like combining AI. So we got all these things exist, and, and I've been working with uh, the University of Surrey recently, um, Professor Kittler, K K I double T L E R. If people want to look him up, and we put all these things together. 
that you could know with an, an image. I used to have to describe them in the men, drop down menus, black trousers, blue jacket, all this sort of nonsense. Now you can say to a computer, show me a, a bald man, a white man with, with a grey beard and it'd find a picture of you and other people like you. Uh, you could say, you could scan your logo. Have we seen this logo before? Have we seen this face? We put all these things together in what was the film database of the Met. So there's a whole management process. You're taking it to police forces and they're like looking at you and like, why, why don't they want to use it? But we used, we used to do NIB 74Ds, which was a description. We would write, <laughs> write the description down of every suspect when they were being processed and we'd clip, yeah. clip it to their fingerprints. And that's the other thing. You were talking about fingerprints earlier on. Now, rightly or wrongly, we would talk to our prisoners whilst we were taking fingerprints yeah. and we would build that rapport, yeah. whatever you want to call it, and we would get the detections, lawfully obtain detections from them. Because yeah. now it's no disrespect, but it'll be taken by a civvy operator who will go in and yeah, they'll, put, yeah, yeah. they'll put them on a scanner, scan the finger, and that's it. There's no, it's, yeah, yeah, it's taking away the post personal side. Yeah, absolutely. And because and it all seems like a good idea, doesn't it, to, to do it electronically, to do it like this? It's like informants. Like I was one, one, I was one of the first dedicated controllers. I will take informants off detectives, but then suddenly there becomes no motivation to get an informant. My view on getting informants was. You, you can be an investigator because you can be trained to be an investigator, in my view. You know, fill in this form, do this, follow this path. Being a detective is more human skills. Speaking to somebody, it's all right raiding the drugs thing and finding the big bag of heroin, but it's the skill to know how to speak to somebody who'll tell you where the big bag of heroin is. That's being a detective. And a lot of that skill, it's seen as dirty work and horrible. But I've always said, you don't find out where the guns are at the Vickers Tea Party, do you? Let's <laughs> go to the Vickers Tea Party and speak to him. But I have to go and speak to rogues and vagabonds to find out where it is. And like I say, it's all, all this trust, you know, all through this was the... I was still, you know, Captain Neville, Major Neville, or whoever in charge of the cadets there. So people, you, you've got to trust. You've got you've got currency in that community, uh, and that and and then working as well. I worked with a professor. Some people were saying to me, "Why are you working with this this doctor?" You know, it's almost like in the police. And you see it in Lancashire. I'm sure this is what one of the problems with the bully investigation. This missing lady that insular not consulting experts and i said well why shouldn't i speak to him oh he might find something out about us well if he finds something out about us then we'll improve that but it's just this cynicism insular nature and and, and people never want any drama because they, they don't get promoted because they've done a good thing they get promoted because they haven't caused any drama because i used to say i was a dci <laughs> for half my service if i worked for coca-cola and worked out a way to make five times more pop uh, with with uh, with for half the budget, uh, with no proper transport allocated to me, the boss of Coca Cola would say to those other factories, "Right, start doing what he's doing." Yeah. In the police, it's a case of right, get him. He's he, he, he's showing us up, you know. And a guy once said to me, "If you rise above mediocrity, they'll be on to you because you're you're uh, you know you're challenging them and all this sort of." Stuff. And it's sad, but it, I suppose that's everywhere in the public sector. Well, it is. But I I remember coming to one of your evenings at, at the yard and. Um... Bernard Hogan Howe tipped out, and he waxed lyrical about the work that you were carrying out. I mean, I think you had a team of people in there and they were given bundles of images to go through to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and it works. You know, whatever anybody says, it works, and I've seen it in action. And it's interesting what you say about the um, – there's professional jealousies. You know, they don't, they, yeah. they don't want you to succeed. What they, what they will do is they'll put on their promotion form that they dealt with you because they didn't like something that you did. And therefore, yeah. and, and, but, but the issues around uh, Lancashire, I agree with the expert. And, and I've, I've sat back and watched it. I've dealt with high-risk missing persons. I know what that looks like and what support you get. And if I wanted super recognisers, I'd get super recognisers. If I, you know, whatever I wanted, I'd get. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the biggest problem for me, and Leveson has had a massive impact on the relationship between the police and the press, because the press, as long as they can verify a story and stand it up, they will use it. And why not work with the press and get the full facts and, and yeah. work with them than, than keep 
it's at loggerheads all the time for, uh, for I, no I, reason. Paul, I, but listen, you just mentioned then that day at the yard when everybody... So we call them super recognizer days where we get like 50 super recognizers in. We'd have every image and we'd show them and, and, and get 250 IDs on a day. So fantastic. And the commissioner came down. I also had there, though, a journalist... OK, and he was like going to do a good news story. And the, the commissioner started arguing with him. And I, I had the ridiculous situation of being a DCI having to say to the commissioner, Governor, please don't piss this bloke off. because he's, <laughs> you know, How mad is that? Turn, you've got to tell the commissioner to calm down. This is a bloke who's trying to help us. Yeah. And you're having a row with him. And, and the other thing as well, when you spoke about professional jealousies, I suppose... What did it for me in the police, really? Uh, and uh, like, it got to the point where you know, I'd done, I'd done my time. Thirty, you know, they tried to do all sorts of discipline against me, which utterly failed. Uh, you know, I've got my exemplary, uh, exemplary conduct certificate, but they started investigating my personal life, all sorts of crazy things about allegations about who my daughter was marrying. I mean, she's about the eldest one was fifteen at the time. All these crazy things, and what it was is I've been put in the forensics department, and with a tenth of the budget. I was solving over a third of the crime. So people in fingerprints and DNA and the boss of it didn't like it, you see, because suddenly you're embarrassing people. Mm. And like I say, the police is just utterly dreadful for that. that twice, two or three times in my career, they start investigating your personal life, delving into you, and these utter cynical bastards, really. And it's just dreadful because it, it the losers are the public. Because I know my old unit, they're solving less than half the crimes they did when I was in. and that, So that's loads and loads of victims who have suffered loads and loads of prolific criminals who got away with it because of a cynical attitude and and protecting people's own careers it used to be called corruption i think yeah and, and did you ever think you'd see the day where a detection rate was as low as it is now i mean it's absolutely unbelievable but not only is it low paul it's the fact they don't care it's low if it was me, I'd be ashamed. So I speak to senior officers and say, I could come in, I could give you, with if, you, if I manage your, if I set up your systems, and I have to praise Thames Valley Police here because they're, they're, you know, they're very good and, and, and forward-looking, uh, particularly DI, uh, Steve Jones and Tina Wallace. I've got to praise those two. But too many police, you go in and say, look, I could get your detection rate up, particularly for burglary. burglary because if you think of burglary, uh, in the last 10 years, the detection rate has gone from about 10 to 5%. Mm. In the same 10 years, 40% of households have invested in ring doorbells, home CCTV. So as the opportunities to detect have gone up, the actual detection has gone down. Yep. And it's all image-based. And so you say to and they just don't care. No, why? Do, because I, I spoke to a retired chief super in Hampshire, and he, he said, like, I, I, he said, what sums up to me is this story. He spoke to the ACC and he said to her, look, I'm getting a bit worried about these hot burglaries, you know, people breaking in when the victims are there, he's, uh, you know, it's getting out of control. And he said, I'm losing sleep about it. And he said to her, mom, what do you lose sleep about? And she said, the lack of female BAME officers. And that, to me, is the sad story of the police. Because I keep saying this, and you know, I do talk TV a lot, GB News and the like. Not one person has ever said to me, I didn't like the colour, sex or sexuality of the officer who helped me. What they say to me is I got a crap service. They were rude to me. They didn't gather evidence. I was uh, I was battered or robbed or molested under a CCTV camera and they're telling me it's not working and all this sort of stuff. And I just think there's an obsession. The best thing the... Um, uh, Home Secretary to do scrap all diversity targets. Let's just recruit all the best people and then we'll get the detection rate. Focus on crime. But this image thing is that uh, I wrote a report 15 years ago called the Untapped Well of Detections, and that is images. Because if you look at police forces, they've got fingerprint departments, they've got DNA, uh, a scientist, and, and they've got a national database. All these things are normal. Images, though, are dealt with appallingly. You know, if you commit a crime in Bolton uh, and then you, you you commit a crime in the same clothes the same day in Blackburn, you won't be you won't be identified. You simply what those crimes will not be linked. Uh, and that's what the, the you know, for if people listening, they want information on this. You know, the, we linked 43 thefts to the same man. That was the highest. And we could, well, of course, when we interviewed him, the guy thought it was going to be 500 thefts, but it, the images had never been gathered in the first place. Uh, and success does be successful. What I found in the Met is that once it started being successful, more officers got more CCTV because they could see something was done with it. People made more IDs, and because they were gripped and, tra and trained, that's important, the detective did something with it. And super recognizers said to me, Governor, before you started all this, 
I, I'd stopped making IDs because I was ringing a DC up and saying, do you know this, this bloke, Billy Smith? And they would do nothing with it. He said, now you're in charge and you have a system where the, you know it goes through a, a management process. They'll make IDs because they've felt something of it. And, and of course, what you do, you have award ceremonies, big days at the yard, pe make people feel important, volunteer awards and all this sort of stuff. And I just think it's so many little, lots of little things made it a big thing. And I'm here to, if other police forces want to do this, they only have to contact me and it's cheap as chips, you know, to do this. Buying a facial recognition computer costs a million pounds. Well, we're going to, we're going to circulate this through all our social media and we'll put all your links into this. But I vividly remember coming into the office and you were deploying a team to the O2, for instance. Yeah. So, so you know, people could put a pair of glasses on or, the, you know, have a fake mistake, whatever. But the super recognisers would pick the suspect out. So if you had a team of Romanian dippers, pickpockets, yeah, yeah. if they had the images, they'd get picked up as they walked into the O2. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. And, of course, you worked with overseas law enforcement teams, Australia. I remember yeah. there, there, was there a murder that your guys... Yeah, mur murder, in, uh, murder in Hastings, Victoria, we helped to solve by yeah. the colour of... That was a colour-matching uh, exercise, was that it? was. Uh, but we get we get images to match from all over the world. I mean, just to give an idea, what just so people understand how super recognisers work, what we seem to think is that whilst somebody would look at you now and say, right, this uh, white guy, he's got a bald head and spectacles and a, Slim. And a beard. Great, great beard. <laughs> of course, you haven't. Oh, you, you at one time you're a very you know you play black hair and no beard and no spectacles. Okay, and we're much better looking like me. <laughs> but. What so the average person looks at Paul Maleri today, yeah? What the super recognizers seem to do is to look at the unchanging features, your eyes, your mouth, your ears, not the glasses, the beard, and stuff. And the bet one of the best super recognizer IDs I was an exercise, and we said to him, Well, there's a, a we showed an image taken in 1970, okay, of a man, black and white photograph. We said, look, you can look at this for five minutes. You're not allowed to take a photograph. You're not allowed to leave with it. We then sent him out into Covent Garden at Christmas time. Imagine how busy that is. And two of the super recognisers found that man wearing a hat from an image taken. Fantastic. Taken, what, 50 years old that image was, and they still found him. Were you given the opportunity when the Lord Lucan, the most recent Lord Lucan stuff that came up, and they reckon that he's... I don't know where he's supposed to be, but yeah. were you given the opportunity to look at the images of that? Was anybody? Yeah, so I, I got my super, but I've got to be honest. See, what you did, the first thing the super recognizers do is do a holistic view. Rather right. than looking at, they do a holistic view and then they look at the eyes. If, if that looks right, then they look at the eyes, the mouth, the nose. Then we don't know what, all, all of them have a different thing that they look at. But with that, it was just obvious from the start it wasn't him because he'd done a facial recognition machine. So the, fa the facial recognition machine had measured that the gap between his eyes was, you know, 5.362 millimetres. Well, there must be several people in the world who have the same, and he'd obviously just found – because it was obviously not him from a holistic yeah. view, was it? No, it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, yeah. I, so the other thing as well, uh, Paul, is that the other thing you can use them for, of course, is not just suspects, but victims. So this was particularly the case on the Hillsborough inquiry. So the super recognisers were, were loaned from the Mets to uh, the inquiry. They found the last 16 people in the crowd footage that they hadn't found in 25 years. Wow. Uh, one of the nicest things of all of that, they found an image of one of them walking up the road with a smile on his face, and that image was given to the mum. You know, so you can find victims. The uh, in like for example the Alice Gross murder, how the super recognisers helped there. You know it's like with major inquiries, you get loads of CCTV. You know if you had loads of fingerprints or loads of DNA, you'd employ on a murder case. You'd employ your best sockholes on that. In the police, you get loads of images. What do you do? You turn out that uh, who, who's on bail, who's unfit for duty, mm. and you get all the wrong. I, I had one sergeant given to me on the fox hunting inquiry, loads of video to watch, uh, who had sleep apnea and was colourblind. And I said, I'm sure he's good at something, <laughs> but it's not this, is it? You know, so on the Alice Cross murder, I said, let's stop the amateurish approach. And I've, I've been in contact with the SIO since, and he said to me, can you give me 10 super recognisers? And the, the 10 super recognisers, what they found where he was, the resulting thing about that was they, they had searched the river once, but because of the super recognisers, they searched the river and found Alice under the logs, you see. So it was the super recognisers who solved that, uh, that case. And then um, with Grenfell, 
the super recognizer had uh, two two um, two roles. Firstly, he was shown all the pictures of the he had all the concierge footage. Uh, for three months, and he was shown photographs of the people who tragically jumped out and, and mm. uh, were on the floor, and he had to track them and say when they entered the building, how they got up and where they were going. But he's also the one who was the evidence for the 17 people prosecuted for fraud who claimed to live there. Ah. So he gave evidence saying, I've watched three months' worth of footage, and that person has never so super recognizers are far better at the negative as well. Fantastic. Whereas a normal person will guess, they'll say that person has never been in this premises. That's how they were prosecuted. And Alice Ross was the murderer at Boston Manor. Is that the Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the West West London, yeah, where she was followed over the Canal Bridge, if you remember yeah, the yeah, video. That's right. By a, a Zarkins, who was a, La a Latvian, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that was that was tragic. And yeah, she went under the I mean it, if you look at Nick Bully, people think that a body will just float. It doesn't just float. No. It, it will stay under Don't. and it goes down first and then it comes up. When 21 days is yeah. the day. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I've been on the news about this. Uh, uh, Anthony, not the fireman. 21 days that was uh, in Sussex. Yeah. He disappeared. From. Yeah. And it's, it's terrible. It's, it's tragic. So, you've, you've, you've got your own company now, as we've said, and we're going to put all that in there. But you've also you've written three books. Yeah, three books. So I, I'm a Freemason. I'm proud to be a Freemason. I know the Freemasons have their uh, crooked side. I wrote, I wrote one about the Bible and Freemason. As I alluded to the very start, I love ancient history uh, and I, I love Bible studies. And I, I could take people around the British Museum and say, this, when this was carved, you know, this, this was happening. But most people don't want that, of course. Uh, and I wrote two, I've written two books. One's called Crime on the, Cra Crime on the Craft. Uh, the other's called. Uh, um, crafted characters tales of infamous and famous masons and what people want to hear about of course is uh, sex murder death and scandal so in crime of the craft i've got the full facts about kenneth noise so you watch this goal thing on the tv yeah i've actually got the minute book from the lodge when he joined so really? i know exactly so i know exactly who was there uh, i've got all the facts and it's all in my book so uh, and, uh, and and so there's a lot of lies told a lot of ramping up and criticism of masons who do and there are some foolish masons but a lot of good ones and the air ambulance flying around london we bought that and some ladders for grenfell tower so we're not bad people but uh, there are like every organization there's a few scoundrels but i would also say the flying squad was set up by a mason and most of the early uh, forensic uh, developments uh, pathology uh, fingerprints uh, uh, testing for poisons, human blood, they're all Freemasons. So there's a lot of goody Freemasons as well, but they all feature in my uh, books. Um, uh, and there's some. Uh, it was a, a Mason who arrested Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So a Mason brought the Moors murders to an end. So there's lots of good stories and there's a few scoundrels. And where can we find your books? Are, are they well, they're on Amazon. They're on Amazon. Uh, or people can contact me if they want signs. People like sign copies of yeah. gifts and things like yeah, that. Yeah, no, so. I, I, I certainly will. And I, I'm a mason. I, I make no apologies for it at all. And I think that a lot is lost um, around what people don't know they make up. And the the amount of great work that's gone on, I'm, I'm, I'm rubbish at it, to be fair, but the, the, the amount of great work that's gone on, when we're going back a few years, when the tsunami hit Thailand, the first people to donate money, was the Masonic, the British Masonic movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that's lost. And, yes, there's always going to be Kenneth Noyes in the in the in any organisation. It doesn't matter yeah, what so. it is. But, actually, there's, a, you know, there's more good than there are bad. Yeah, but, but interestingly enough, I mean, there was a talking about the gold, and I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't um, like anything that glorifies a criminal, um, and... It has to be remembered that a police officer died at the hands of yeah, of Kenneth Noy, John Fordham, yes, John Fordham, absolutely. and I and I totally despise you know Kenneth Noy and, and and what he did, but I I did enjoy the adaptation of the the program, but it did show a senior police officer sitting next to him in a in a lodge meeting. I don't know how true that was, whether there was any you know anything in, in that, um, or whether people were passing information to him. But he was an affable character. He socialised with the local police as much as anything else, um, and he gleaned his information from fools, basically people un unwittingly from fools. And um, well, as I said, as I said earlier, Paul, you, the dirty—it's a dirty business. You don't get that information at a vicar's tea party. You've got to deal with these individuals. But when you deal with them, you've got to be careful that they—they're they, trying to get information just. 
Like that. I mean, one of the best questions I was ever asked was in Paris, and one of the French police officers said, "What could an evil super recognizer do?" You know, so because if we're going to use the police, are going to use them. Why is Why yeah. won't they going to use them? Yeah. Well, why? Why wouldn't you? I mean, I, I absolutely agree. You, you, you think you look at the high net worth individuals that we've got walking around London. If I were, if I were criminally minded, I would. I'd have a super recognizer who would who'd just yeah. stand out near their property, wherever it may be in in West London. When you, um, when you joined the army cadets, did you think for one minute that you were going to go on to be a colonel in the? No, no. I, mem- I remember once. I remember being a cadet because I was a cadet in Bolton, and we went to camp, and a brigadier turned up, and the only only other brigadier I'd ever seen was on Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I was with the brigadier this week, and I mentioned that to him, and he said, "Oh, yeah, I remember the uh, the brigadier." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a, what's happened. It's another life, really. So in that life, I have uh, I found I, I'm good at identifying, I suppose, um, niches. And what happened uh, in the cadets? They were trying to say I was in southeast London. I was at Kenny, a place in Kennington, and it, you know, we recruited from Brixton and Peckham and stuff. And the uh, full-time major said, oh, we want a, a music. So we sat on this little core of drums, and I taught myself. I could play guitar, so I taught myself to play the flute to show the kids, oh, you can do this. And we're marching around, and, and, and people liked it. And I thought, you know, there's something to be made of this. And then I was approached by a guy um, who's now a captain in the Army, who was a, a corporal in the Welsh Guards Band, and he said, oh, it's a, you know, we've got these music camps where it's a bit of a fiasco. Because um, I'm not being funny. If you watch Ain't Half Hot Mum, the people are true. I deal with all those characters you know they're yeah, entertained yeah. musicians don't make good soldiers they're artists aren't they and uh, so i i went and organized because i'm a better organizer than a flute player and, <laughs> and i rose up to so now i'm in charge of all music in the uk and gibraltar and it's fantastic to see young people achieving because you get so many bad things about young you know, young people and you get a lot of really wonderful skill what always strikes me is a skilled musician who can play several instruments who's happy to sit with a you know, a kid from a council house in in, 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 in in Bolton or one from a council flat in Brixton and play three blind mice 50 times with that kid getting it right. And I think that's a lovely thing. Mm. Um, and, of course, the other for the communities, uh, all the what the communities want from the cadets really is there aren't many army bands left or reserves. So all they want from the army cadets is on Remembrance Sunday they want possibly somebody to march in front and play Great Escape and whatever else as they march to the Cenotaph, but they certainly need a bugler or a piper to play Lament at the Cenotaph at the appropriate time. And so it's a wonderful thing. It provides a good community uh, spirit, and it's great fun. Uh, it, when we go away, of course, we have the best mess because we have music music every night. You know, so, uh, yeah, lovely. Do you still play the flute? Oh, yeah, I can still. I play the guitar more, actually. I... Uh, um, uh, uh, we have a rock band as well because, of course, people can play all these wonderful instruments for an army band. They can also have rock bands, and the army has rock bands because, of course, if you go and entertain the troops in Afghanistan, they didn't want to hear British Grenadiers. They want to hear an Adele song or, you know, yeah, whatever, absolutely. the latest top of the pop sort of thing. Absolutely. So I do that, yeah. So That's brilliant. And what does the future look like for Mike Neville? Well, I might be getting married again, so I'm a, I'm a romantic fool. If not, if not, I'm good with images, but not good with women, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um. I've got face facts. Uh, I, I, I'm lucky to get around. It's wonderful to have a. It's wonderful to have something that you can give to the world. So there's a super recognizer unit in Queensland. There's super recognizer units all over Germany because I went over and I helped them after the sex attacks in Cologne. I've, I've got a document today in Spanish with Senor Neville says this, and it's lovely to to have invented something that's that could do the world good. And when I say my prayers, I say, Lord, please, you know, you're giving me all this knowledge. Please let me use it to make the world a better place. As I say, I'm not interested in money. As long as I've got money to support the people I, I look after, then I just this skill it really would make a difference with my life with music. I I put I think you can only be the, the position for five years and the cadets. I'll, I'll find a new role. I used to do a lot of uh, outreach um, with young offenders and stuff. That's a really uh, that's really lovely working with kids who've got you know you find the ones with the most convictions are the best leaders. You know if you give them in the right direction. Uh, with masonry, I'll continue. I'll, I'll go around the world giving talks, and making people laugh, and I've raised about a hundred grand for charity through the talks. So that's a good thing, really. And I meet lots of 
fun and nice people. I give people walks around London, crime walks and Masonic walks. So if people want to see famous crime scenes. So my, my life, you know, I've got high blood pressure and stuff like that. All my family die about 75, so I've got about 20 years left. So I suppose I'll make the most of it and um, have, have a good time, really. Well, Michael, I've I've really enjoyed today. I hope you have. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. And without, you know, it's fascinating. And, and to have worked with you previously, I can share your frustrations if you're former force on adopting it with open arms because I certainly know that Hogan Howe loved it. And we're talking 10 years or there or thereabouts, and it's yeah. it's just ridiculous that we're in a situation that we're talking about something that should be implemented in every single force. They've got a team for everything else. They need to they need yeah, to yeah. have this. But without further ado, is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in what you've no, said? No, it's today? it's great great to see you, and I uh, hope we can have a drink together. And I just I just offer my services. Please uh, use my skills, and I can help your police forces up the detection rate and really help help victims of crime. That's brilliant, and that includes private industry, doesn't it? If they've got Absolutely. CCTV system and they've got issues, you can you can help work Absolutely. that out. Thanks so much, Mike. Cheers. Thank you.